This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. One of the questions that I get on a regular basis is, how's the church doing? And whenever I'm asked that, I want to tell you it's doing great. I want to tell you that things are wonderful, that we're just in a perpetual state of revival. But sometimes they stink. If you're pursuing ministry as a vocation, and while I encourage you to do that, and I commend that, I pray for that, I encourage guys in our church to consider that. My own son has done that. At the same time, do not look to success in ministry, whatever that is, as a means of giving you what you want or giving you even what you need. Because only God can do that. We don't go into the ministry in order to be fulfilled. We go into the ministry in order to make much of Christ, to pour ourselves out, to serve. In a word, to die. But it is in the dying that we live, it is in the serving that we are satisfied, it is in the pouring out that we are filled. If in that giving and in that dying and in that serving, it is motivated by a desire to put God on display and you're relying upon the Spirit of God for that. Because the truth is, brothers, I think you know this ministry is, is messy. And a good shepherd has to smell like the sheep. And if you don't know this, sheep usually stink. And when you choose to be close to people, you will suffer collateral damage. The crisis in their lives, you carry home with you. In some cases, they will keep you up all night long. The wealthiest man in my not-so-big congregation was angered at me because I would not look the other way when his daughter was pursuing an unbiblical divorce. And I just remember just the anxiety of feeling the weight of doing what is right yet realizing this whole thing could just cave in in a moment. And it's not just me anymore. I mean, I got a wife. I got kids. I got these responsibilities. We live east of Eden. And serving as we must provides so many opportunities, honestly, for lament. There's a lot of grief. How's the church doing? How's your life doing? Lamentations is a collection of 
poems of lament. And the poet here is grieving over the loss of his people, the loss of his city, the loss of his nation. His, his anguish is so personal. But it is also theological. He doesn't question whether or not there is a God. He knows what has happened to Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians is from God because God repeatedly warned about this through his servants, the prophets. This is going to happen. But one of the questions that this poet has, I, I think it was Jeremiah, but it's, all right, God, but, but why do I have to pay? Why, why do I have to be caught up in this? I didn't rebel against you, God, yet I am suffering as if I did. In chapter 3, in verse 19, we read these words. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. So what the poet is doing here, particularly in this third poem, he's questioning his beliefs. He doesn't hide his struggles. In the midst of his struggle, he makes this powerful claim. It's like in the midst of the storm, he plants a flag, he declares his faith, he stakes a claim, and what I read for you is about the best of the book of Lamentations. I mean, this is like the high point of the whole thing. And we have some of the most treasured words in the Christian vocabulary. I mean, one of the greatest hymns I think of all time that we just love to sing, great is thy faithfulness, comes right out of this book. So when people skip this book, it's like, man, you're, you're, you're skipping some of the great stuff. And yet, right after this, you continue on in chapter 3. It's as if the poet goes back to that flag that he planted in the ground and said, here I stand, I can do no other. He, it's like he goes back and he kind of takes the flag and throws it to the ground. Well, I just don't feel like that now. And so when we read these words in the middle of chapter 3 that we just read, it's like, yeah, I want the poet to mean it. I want him to never move off of this. And, and I want to say the same thing in the midst of the struggles of life. I want to say the same thing. Uh, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, I, I want to say these things. 
but we don't always say it. So I outlined this chapter with what I see, the, the four emphasis here. Number one, verses one through 21, God must hate me. And then what we read in verses 20 through 39, point number two, I'm going to trust God anyway. And then verses 40 through 54, God, it still feels like you hate me. And then the conclusion, verses 55 through 66, yet I still believe that God will rescue me. Lord, we need your help. We're going to understand not only your word rightly, we need your help that we might understand ourselves rightly. So I pray, Spirit of God, for you to help us do both of that in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. I think most of us view suffering as summer school. I didn't pass the test the first time, so... You know, got to go back and take that class over again. But, you know, once I take Hebrew for the third time, I will finally, <laughs> finally get done, and I won't have to do it again. Um, Hebrew always gets picked on, doesn't it? You know, I'm, I'm sorry. But I am going to give you a little shout-out here a little later on. Um, so we enter into this season of suffering, and we think, oh, man, I just need to hurry up, learn my lesson, Get this thing over with so I can go on to, you know, better ground. But what happens if you learn your lesson and you don't lose faith in the midst of the battle? You boldly declare your trust in God and your suffering doesn't end. Now what? Now is when you find out what you really believe. I have to trust God when my circumstances are bad. I have to learn to trust God when my circumstances are bad and they don't change. I have to learn to trust God when my emotional response to my unchanging bad circumstances don't change either. And brothers, this chapter is such an honest-to-God view of what our experience as believers can look like. And not everyone is going to go through something quite as catastrophic as the poet did. But your life is messy too. And I desperately want you to know that just because your faith gets rocked from time to time and people that you have trusted in and depended upon will let you down and there's a sense in which some, some situations betray you and you wonder, you know, just didn't think I signed up for this. That doesn't mean that there's something that's fatally wrong with you. God put this poem in his word so that you and I would have a language to be able to express our experience even when what we experience is so erratic. In fact, the detailed writing style that the poet uses um, 
makes us aware that what he is saying here is very carefully composed. Sometimes when you, if you're just reading through Lamentations, it almost sounds like the guy is just throwing up, you know, on the pages here. But it's not. It's not a, not a knee-jerk reaction. And thanks to some Hebrew classes that I, that I took here, um, the Hebrew of Lamentations is phenomenal. If you'll notice, every chapter, with the exception of chapter 3, has 22 verses. There is a, there's a reason for that, because chapter 1 is an acrostic. Every verse begins with a, a, a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the same thing is in chapter 2. Well, in chapter 3, even though it says 66 verses, I would argue it's actually which 22 times 3. I would actually argue that it's more like 22 verses because this time you have three lines to start with Aleph and then three lines to start with Beth and then three lines to start with Gimel and Daleph and, and, and so forth. That's all I remember. No. Um, <laughs> and then chapter 4, 22 verses, and it's an acrostic as well. Chapter 5 is 22 verses, but there's no acrostic that's there. And it's the shortest of all of them. It's as if the the poet has just kind of run out. He's wrung out. He's just run out of things to say. And yet also in, in Hebrew poetry, you, you, you also have the, uh, the sometimes a chiastic structure that's going on. And, uh, and I think, I think that's what's going on in chapter three. And so what ends up being the very center of chapter three, which is the center of the book, is actually um, verses 31 through 30, 33, that the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And, and I get the sense that everything at the beginning of this book is to be read in anticipation of that, and then everything that follows is kind of going from it. That, that's, that's, that's the high point. That's the, that's the peak of the mountain that is there. Anyway, I say all of that to you, brothers, because I, I want you to know that this book is not a knee-jerk response where this guy is just throwing up on his Facebook page and just, just, you know, just casting out all of this information. It's, it's not a shoot from the hip, heat-sinking, emotional, knee-jerk response. This is a well-thought, organized, painstakingly written expression of what the poet is thinking. And at the end of chapter 3, as well as the end of the book, everything is not okay. Everything is not neat and tidy with all the crumbs of the crisis swept up and a mess and a catastrophe mopped up and the situation is, is not resolved. The problem's not gone. The questions and the conflict remain. Let's go through this. Verses 1 through 21. God, you must hate me. Wow. I mean, you, you have at the beginning of this chapter an honest-to-God admission about how, you know, that, that, that touches just about on every aspect of life. Verses 1 through 3 are a general description of how God, you 
You, you got to be against me. I'm living as the recipient of your rod of wrath. I'm not sure how much more of this I can handle. My life is dark. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. He goes on to describe things that he is experiencing, both physically and emotionally. Now I look at verse number four. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. I, I, I feel more dead than alive. He's just getting started. The things that he is saying are the things that God has done to him. You, you read through this opening section, the guy sounds clinically depressed, schizophrenic, claustrophobic, and paranoid. He's trapped without any means of escape. He imagines bears that are waiting to eat him, arrows being shot at him and hitting him, being laughed at by anyone who, who sees him, his teeth. His teeth, he describes, is grinding on gravel. He cowers in ashes. And then he says he has no remembrance at all of ever in his life being happy. Then other than that, he's fine. Okay? I mean, by, by verse 18, he is at the end of his rope, and all of his hope in God is gone. The guy sounds suicidal. I don't think... God, why'd you put this in the Bible? I mean, this is supposed to be encouraging. Most of the people that we serve prefer a religion where you can pray away danger and you can believe away problems. You can declare the darkness gone and you can just praise away the pain. And what that means is that Jesus in the gospel is essentially a pill in the bottle to dull the pain and mask the issues so I can survive. When we get close to people's lives, we understand why that is attractive to them. Because the pains in our lives are real. The sorrows we experience run deep. The things that suffering seems to say about us are frightening. I can understand why you would want to avoid that. Nine years ago, my sister committed suicide. Pastors aren't supposed to have families that things like that happen to them. And course, what, what kind of a brother am I that would have a sister that do something like that? What is that? All of those things. It, you, you, you have that kind of stuff. True religion is not untouched by sorrow. Authentic Christianity is raw because it's real. It doesn't minimize our pain. It doesn't ignore the reality of our grief. It doesn't question. Uh, I mean, it, it, it it, it, it doesn't question the legitimacy of our doubts. It doesn't call us to live in a land of make-believe. In Lamentations 3 is a report from the battlefield. I mean, it, it includes this tally of casualties that are there. All is not well, even if we want it to be. Now, Lamentations 3 does not describe the entire war, but it does describe a day in the battle. And the day that it describes is not particularly a great day. And if that has ever described you, or that describes you right now, brothers, take 
heart. You do not have to pretend that every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. I don't know if any of you remember that song. Okay, <laughs> It might be a couple of us. There was a group of senior saints in my church who was singing that one day in a senior event. And uh, I remember saying, okay, for how many of you, how many, is, is this really true? Is every day with Jesus really sweeter than the day before? They all looked at me and went, no, no. <laughs> I said, well, how come you sing this song? Oh, we like the song. <laughs> I know you like the song, but how come you It's not true. Oh, we don't care. Yeah, well, I care, you know. I don't want you singing things that aren't true. It's just like masking over the reality, reality of life. And, and while that song, and, and I think whoever wrote the song probably meant well, it's honestly not helpful. And I, I, I say to my people, learn to sing songs that you can sing in the night. And you think I'm singing that song in the night. So in verse 19, that's the portion we began to read, the, the, the poet actually stops describing his situation and he begins praying. And up until this point, he's been talking about God and now he actually talks to God. And what he says to God sounds more like a complaint. Remember my affliction. Remember my wanderings, the wormwood and the Gall. I mean, that is describing a soul-rotting, stomach-turning bitterness. In fact, when I remember it, my soul is crushed again, it seems. But something happens when he prays. As he complains to God, he remembers something else. He begins to consider some things about God that he has forgotten. It is in his praying to God that he is remembering some things and it's in this moment that he begins to preach to himself instead of just listening to himself and that's what brings us to point number two i will trust god anyway god it feels like you hate me but i'm going to trust you anyway and that's what we have there in verses 22 through 39 they are a strong affirmation of the character and purposes of God. Here are the things that he remembers about God, the things that he preaches to his own soul in the darkness of the night. The poet is obviously not denying reality or glossing over the destruction around him. There does not seem to be anything circumstantially that has changed between verse 21 and verse 22. The guy's life is being crushed, and as his life is being crushed, like squeezed in a vice what is coming out of him is anguish and fear and anger and deep grief but brother that's not all that comes out there's something else that comes out he realizes i do believe in god and i do believe god it's there in spite of everything else that has happened he believes God. It's one of the things why I think it is Jeremiah, because Jeremiah said, I quit. I can't do this anymore, only to find out the word of God has such a hold on him. He had to say it. Even though he didn't want to, he had to. Sometimes that's what ministry is like. 
It sounds a little bit like Job who says, Man, you know what, even though you kill me, I'm going to trust you. And all of the things that the poet says at this point, they are true. It's as if he is trying to both defend God to others and preach to himself. And brothers, we all need to preach to ourselves because when we listen to ourselves, what we tend to hear is my suffering means that God is against me. My suffering may mean that I'm not a Christian. My suffering may mean that God's promises don't work for me. My, my adversity may mean that I, I, I'm just, I, I can't do this job or somehow I'm cursed or in some of our great moments of despair, we fear maybe I am not even elect. Instead of listening to ourselves, we need to preach to ourselves. And that's what the poet is doing. And he recalls things that are true. And then he says, here's what I will do. For example, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's true. His mercies never come to an end. That's true. They are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. And the Lord is my portion. All of that is true. Then he says, look at the end of verse 24. Therefore, therefore, I will hope in him. So he's explaining to himself and anyone else who will listen that since the love of the Lord and the mercies of the Lord will outlast any calamity that I am in, even though my calamity is exceedingly deep, God's judgment may be huge, but God's love and mercy are bigger still. The judgment of God is real, but the judgment of God does not cancel out the mercy of God. And then that resonates with us. So it's in the midst of his pain, he plants this flag, he takes this high ground. And he says in verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. This, this waiting is not the kind of waiting that you do in the parking lot of the school when you're waiting for your kid to get done with volleyball practice or soccer practice or this this. That kind of waiting is just marking time kind of waiting, okay? This, this waiting is a waiting that you do for the kids, and now for me, the grandkids, of, of showing up at the house for Thanksgiving dinner. Well, it's an anticipation. It's a getting things ready. It's a... Uh, I can't wait. Are they, are they here yet? Do you hear the car coming down the road? That kind of waiting. That's, that's what it is. The poet is saying here that the Lord is good to those who actively prepare for him to show up knowing that he will. And you may not feel like shouting in the adversity. You may not even feel like praying. But it's good that you act prepare for God to show up even if you do it verse 26 quietly why is it good it's good because God will show up he will come through and those who trust him will not be disappointed in the end verse 27 it's good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth it's good to learn this when you're young because it will serve you well through adversity we live in a sin-cursed world. Things are not what they should be, nor what they will be. We live with an adversary, the devil, who is a roaming lion seeking to devour anyone he can. 
Those of you who are a parent, your job is not to shield your children from adversity. Teach them how to endure through it. And the poet is saying, this is what God does for us. And here's what we do when the yoke of adversity is placed upon us. Sit. Verse 28. Sit. Sit in silence. Accept the weight. Think carefully and deeply about it. Mourn your losses. Grieve your pain. Do not go on and pretend as if nothing has happened. And while you do not desire pain and adversity, when it comes, you do not have to rage against it. Verse 30, let it have its way. Let adversity and even insult do a work, a good work in you. I don't have time to, I think you get the whole flow of this, of this, of this book, and particularly this, this chapter. Um, but in verses 40 through 54, he, it's like he, he, he goes backwards instead of forwards and says, God, it still feels like you hate me. What do you do? What do you turn to? What do you think when your unresolved issues do not get resolved? What do you do when you begin to realize that you will always walk with a limp? You love God, but your anxiety is not gone. Your battle for lust does not disappear because you're in seminary. You're still prone to depression. Life is not one success after another. Your wife has insecurities that just don't seem to go away and you can't do all that she wants. Is this my life? It's, 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 it's hard to come to grips with the fact that life as I live it is going to have a measure of things that never get resolved this side of glory. And the poet then, in, in reflecting that, is, is, is struggling that, well, you know, he writes again as if, God, it feels like you still hate me. And then he declares a stubborn hope, but when his circumstances don't <laughs> change, you know, what do you turn? What do you do when all of your options are gone? And that's how I think the thing ends in verses 55 through 66 when he says, I still believe that God will rescue me. And I think that this final section is very helpful because of the verb tenses. Notice how beginning in verse 55, he now begins to speak in the past tense. Notice these verbs. I called, you heard, you came, you have, you have, you have, you have. And then in verse 64, what does he say? You will, you will, you will. And that final affirmation, I think, at the end of this chapter, is even in a sense more convictional because what he is saying here is that in spite of nothing circumstantially changing and no evidence that it will anytime soon 
my hope is still in God. Brothers, as much as we detest, and rightfully so, the prosperity gospel, I think that we have a tendency to have inside of us a little prosperity theology. If I do things good, do good things, even like going into the ministry and serving my church. I mean, certainly something good can come out of that, right? Well, I want you to know that what ministry does not mean, it, it does not mean that you should expect that everything in your life is now going to be fixed. Ministry does not mean that you're going to get the respect that you want because that's serving yourself but not Christ. Serve Christ. Serve His church because He is worth it. Jesus is worth a beautiful bride. No one else can forgive your sin. No one else can take your punishment. No one else can provide you with eternal life or your people. And that's why no one else is worth the cost. And what Lamentations does is it teaches us that suffering is part of our story and there is no way to avoid that but suffering, just just as lamentations, it's not the end of the book. <laughs> suffering doesn't have the final word. God does. And you can believe that. And you can serve others with that same hope. God, we we thank you for this book. It's a hard book, and we realize that probably not the fan favorite of everybody in the congregation, but wow. So needful for our souls, so helpful for our souls, so helpful for those that we serve and love and care for. I, I pray that these truths will just be a fresh reminder to us of the nature of the journey and the hope that, that awaits us, as well as, Lord, give us an appreciation for the shoulders that we stand on. Men like this poet, whose life you used to show that you're worth believing, even in the midst of such difficulty. Leverage this up for the glory of your name. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.